Welcome to the Portable Pulpit. Let's go. What up, family? This is Colby Corso on the Portable Pulpit, and we're going to dive into a sermon extension uh, off of a sermon I gave out of Mark um, chapter 3, verse 20 through 35. Um, this passage, if you're familiar with it, is a passage that deals with the highly controversial blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, in the sermon, I dealt with um, verses 20 through 21, and then again 31 through 35, dealing with the unique pressure that every believer has to go through, and that is um, members of their own family being a wet blanket. It then transitions into a second pressure that Jesus faced incredibly well, that sometimes we don't face as well, which is he had to deal with the intellectual um, folks in his generation. He had to go up against the intelligista. And I, I say that in terms of defining who the scribes were. These were people who originally were copyists of the scriptures, but became teachers, um, almost lawyer-like. These are highly intellectual people in his culture. And they came to him from Jerusalem and were saying, uh, verse 22, and the scribes came down from Jerusalem and were saying, he is possessed by Belzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. So these scribes, often which some of them would have been Pharisees, had incredible intellectual influence. They were the experts of their day. It'd be equivalent to us in 2021 saying scientists say or certain scholars say. Um, and they come down to Jesus, and they were saying, they were repeatedly saying that Jesus is Belzebul. Belzebul uh, was the Canaanite deity um, who his name literally means uh, Lord of the house or Lord of the temple. And they're basically uh, the Israelites, uh, God's people in the Old Testament, um, did a real brilliant thing in First Kings. They changed one letter of Belzebul's name, and instead of being uh, Lord of the house, he it actually was Belzebub, which was Lord of the flies. So this became a, a kind of a a little like trash talk that God's people did to the foreign deities of their neighbors. And over a period of time, um, this um, demonic um, deity um, was associated with Satan. And that's why the prince of demons, he casts out demons. They're basically saying the miracles that have happened so far in the first few chapters of Mark, they are ascribing to Satan. Verse 23 and he called them to him. I love that about Jesus. Jesus actually doesn't let them just kind of talk their trash in the corner of the internet, but he actually gets face to face with them and like is going to like straighten them out. All right. And in a culture where more so even than this day, uh, it's easy to talk trash about people and hide behind computer screens. I have no idea what it means for Jesus to get right up in their face, face to face with them in order to share the truth with them. Um, but I love that, and I think that moves us in that same direction. He said to them in parables. Uh, parables come from parabola, um, which is to throw alongside. So he's going to take um, a story and throw it alongside reality, and it's going to help the people that are listening to him understand the reality that he's looking at. So here's the first one. How can, it's a question, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So the first one's about a kingdom, right? And if a house, by the way, Belzebul, Lord of the house, 
So he's bringing this is, I mean, there, there's uh, a little bit of a, um, a rabbit punch here. If a house is divided against itself, a house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house, plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man, and indeed he may plunder his house. So what's ironic about this is they miss the forest for the trees. Jesus goes to these people who would have known the Old Testament, and if there's ever a time that Jesus could have dismantled them with the Old Testament, it would have been here, but he actually comes at them with logic. And I said this on Sunday, um, it's kind of Sun Tzu logic, where it's the art of war, like your enemy, if he is divided, is weaker. If he is unified, he is stronger. Anybody around the world could look at this logic and agree with what Jesus is saying. And so I love that about the Lord. Like he he comes and he says, I'm not going to allow you to kind of twist scripture, dance around scripture. I'm going to come so something so simple like a two-year-old could get it. And he even attacks this Lord of the house thing that's going on. Now, I want to say this. What is fascinating is, is how they miss it because it is not Satan that is casting out Satan. It's God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. The kingdom of Satan is divided and cannot stand, but it's divided because Christ is coming to split the kingdom of Satan by taking people that are following the devil and redeeming them and saving them to his team. And it's not Satan that's risen up against himself. It's God that has risen up against the enemy Satan in such a way that he cannot stand and is going to, and I quote, come to an end. Again, I love the last picture that Jesus puts in. He says, no one can go into a strong man's house except that he first binds the strong man. So he puts the jujitsu on him. He puts the lasso of truth on him. And it's like Jesus in the church is pictured as a SWAT team that kicks in the door and comes in and Literally, you are, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are the plunder of God that SWAT team Jesus kicked in the door of Satan's house and took for himself. Now, Satan could be seen here as a squatter because all things belong to the Lord. But I just don't think that's how we see things because I think we think people are good people and Satan is kind of picking off some, you know, good people to become Joseph Stalin or Hitler. But the truth is, is that all of humanity is fallen and wicked, and God is picking off wicked people to become his children, redeemed and holy. They are his plunder. All right, so that's how Jesus gets to it. So I think that's pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, But then it gets into, let's get into a little bit uh, heavier part. Verse 28, truly, this is the word amen. And I talked about this, whenever people pray or they preach, if what they say is true, and it's our heart that may it be so, um, we say amen after someone stops talking, right? Uh, but we wait to see if what they say is actually true, whether we stand in agreement with it. Jesus says amen on the front end of his statements. In the New Testament, this is exclusive to Jesus because Jesus is self-authenticating. God does not need your permission to be true. And when he says truly or amen, amen, truly, truly, like your ears should perk up here. I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man in whatever blasphemies they utter. And, and I, I stopped right there. And I said this on Sunday. I think in all of my time of ever looking at this passage and asking what it means and, and debating it and other things, 
I, I don't think I've ever really sank my teeth into that like I have in the last few weeks, where it starts with this unbelievable statement about grace, that by the grace of God, in Jesus Christ, all sins will be forgiven. There's forgiveness in Jesus that is unbelievable. To adulterers and liars and thieves and murderers, to racists and killers, people that have done fits of anger, to the sexually immoral, like, sins are forgiven in Jesus' name. And I think that sometimes when we want to run onto the what's called the unforgivable sin, which I think is wrongly named, uh, we weren't run on to discuss and debate and have these theological discussions about that, that we we forget about it's founded on the idea, the, the preceding idea at least, is that Jesus is in the forgiving business. That Jesus is a SWAT team looking to extend forgiveness to those that have been kidnapped by Satan. Now look, but, and this is where it gets thick, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, which is a question of what does that mean? Then I think a lot of people stop right there, but verse 30 exists, and that verse 30 gives us some context of what is he talking about. Verse 30 says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I wrongly, accidentally said this was an imperative verb. It's an imperfect verb. Something that happens in the past and has continual action in the future. What they were saying about the Holy Spirit's work was not a one and done. Whatever this blasphemy is, it is not a one-time thing. Um, Throughout my ministry, I've had people um, come to me and afraid when they read this verse. It's like, maybe I've committed the unpardonable or unforgivable sin, and they're scared to death. Um, I think J.C. Ryle has a great quote about people that are... Um, afraid that they've committed uh, the unforgivable sin are the people least likely to have actually committed that sin. Because part of what's happening here is a hardness of heart that is insensitive to sin to begin with or its consequences. The person that is blaspheming the Holy Spirit does not care about the holiness of God, the Holy Spirit. They don't care about sin. They don't care about truth. They don't care about Jesus. The person that comes hating sin, broken over sin, I think is most likely not. Now, in throughout my ministry, I've heard this called many different things. I've heard it said, if you deny, in the charismatic circles, if you deny um, like miracles or the, the speaking in tongues or different de- demonstrations of the Holy Spirit, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I've heard some people say it's murder or genocide or even adultery. That can't be what it is because it says, for he was saying, he has an unclean spirit. Clearly, it is connected to the idea that the scribes are looking at the works that Jesus is doing. Healings, his teachings, his alleviation of the demonic from people. So he's like freeing people from demonic spirits. And they are saying, they're attributing credit for that to something else. I mean, we could say here, it's an unclean spirit, it's Satan, it's Beelzebul, whatever. But they're just saying what Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing is not from God through the Holy Spirit. It's from something else. Now, that should hit us a little bit different because in our day, we have a lot of people that are okay with Jesus, but they'll say Jesus was a good mentor, a life coach. He's a good teacher, but he's not the Son of God. 
right? Even though the book starts that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, they're going to argue that Jesus is not who they say who he says he is. And if he's a good teacher, what does he teach? Well, he teaches that he is God come to take away the sins of the world. So how do you call him a good teacher and then not listen to his teachings? We can go on to most world religions. We can go into Buddhism and Hinduism that say, well, maybe he's a God among gods, where Jesus teaches there's only one God, the true God. So that contradicts Hinduism. We go to Buddhism. He's just another enlightened person like the Buddha. right? What they're doing is they're taking Jesus out of context and they're ascribing his works, his life, his teachings to something else. That's exactly what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Go into Islam. The largest cult in the world is Islam, who says Jesus is not the Son of God. He is just a prophet like Muhammad, not as good as Muhammad, slightly lower, right? Okay, well, did Jesus claim to be a prophet? Did he claim to be merely, only, exclusively a prophet, or did he claim to be more? So this is the question. If he's a prophet, what did he prophesy? Right? Okay, and if that prophecy points to him being more than a prophet, you got to come to grips with that. When Islam, in, in a demonic spirit, tries to go at Jesus and explain away Jesus as something other than who he is, are they not committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, that's a question about what does the word blasphemy mean? It's a transliteration uh, directly out of the Greek. And the best I can do, and we could do an Old Testament, New Testament study of how this has a range of meanings and what it looks at, but I think a good, at least foundational look at the word blasphemy is that it is an irreverent defiance or a slanderous resistance to God. Here's another way of saying it. It's a stubborn refusal. It's a stubborn refusal, and if I could be so vulgar, add in a little middle finger to God. So, it's saying here that they blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and that that person never has forgiveness. Well, I would agree with that. Somebody who would say Jesus is just a moral teacher, but not the Son of God come to take away sins, I'd say that person does not have forgiveness. If somebody comes in in Islam and says he's a prophet and he's he's just a man and he's not fully God, fully man, come to take away sins of the world, I say that person does not have the biblical Jesus and does not have forgiveness. And I could go on and on. I, and I think this is connected to another reality that is so key uh, to the scriptures. And that is that what's happening in the heart being connected to what is confessed with the mouth. 1 John 4, 2-3 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So, he's teaching spiritual discernment, and he's saying every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Okay, another one. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God, says Jesus is cursed. And no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, you would never be enabled to truly, from the heart, confess Jesus Christ. Now that's awesome. Um, So here's the way I talked about it at uh, the Stoller's House Church a couple weeks ago. What Jesus did in being uh, born of a virgin, living under the law, living 
perfectly fulfilling the law, perfectly doing what the Father wanted, all that he accomplished on the cross, his death and resurrection, would mean nothing to you and would not change your heart and mind. You would not be a believer if not for the work of God the Holy Spirit, who the Scripture says leads you into all truth. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's the truth. And Jesus says to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit leads you into all truth. What the Holy Spirit's role is, is to take the unregenerate dead heart of a believer, make it receptive to the seed of the Word of God, and bring those two together. All that Christ accomplished would mean nothing to you if the Holy Spirit didn't bring it and implant it into your heart. This is the unique role of the Holy Spirit that we worship Him for. And I know that a lot of times when we talk about the Holy Spirit, people get creeped out or they, they kind of ignore his role. But this is one of those central times that we don't understand how critical the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. And so we don't get why he's given this such, he's, he's used as a part of this really stark warning. Like, don't play around with Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit comes in and starts revealing and witnessing to your heart, whether that's like Romans 1 through all creation or Romans 19 or uh, sorry Psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of the Lord when the truth in all of nature is being used by the Holy Spirit to penetrate your heart about the reality of God and his attributes when a Christian is witnessing to you and showing you the the glories of Jesus Christ when 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 the Holy Spirit is working on your heart for you to explain that away as like bad Italian food or pop psychology or that's just something my parents did or that's my culture or that's them Christians. When you start to have the Holy Spirit work on you and you stubbornly refuse and are defiant, you are cutting yourself off from forgiveness. So I, I think that makes all the sense in the world that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, that is, rejects the work of the Holy Spirit, who is coming to tell us who Christ is, that these works we see in Mark, first three chapters, and throughout the book, Gospel of Mark, is true, like the Holy Spirit is coming to reveal that to a heart, and when we blaspheme, we stubbornly refuse, we defiantly and irreverently reject that, I agree with what the Scriptures are saying, that person does not have forgiveness. A forgiveness that verse 28 is telling us can be forgiven in Jesus. Now, the thing about it here is guilty of an eternal sin. What is the difference between a temporal sin, if that's such a thing in Scripture, and an eternal sin? I, I don't know, um, but I think that it, it has one of two range of meanings. One, which is this is where I'm going to land, is that all sins have eternal consequences. And so I don't necessarily see I, as guilty, if he says it's guilty of a sin, I don't know if it hits the same way, but I think what he's trying to say is, is that this has eternal consequences of the sin that you're committing. So I think it makes the warning that much more stark. And I think that's in the range of possibilities. I also think, as many theologians do, it's in the range of possibility. They's talking about this person that maybe, again, this is not a one-time thing, but this is more of a posture of the heart. It's a repeated pattern. Um, some theologians will argue that this is talking about a person um, that is so defiant for such a long period of time that they become so hardened that they are they have moved themselves beyond saving. 
It's not as though Jesus' uh, saving is not capable of those things, but they have they have made their decision and they're they're sold in. So this is like the Hebrew six, the one that has fallen away. Um, they can't come back because they've kind of cut themselves off. It's like, oh yeah, I've tasted that Jesus thing. It's not for me. It's like actually their blasphemy of the Holy Spirit has has distanced themselves from that. So it's like this. It's like someone can get so far down the road that their their ship has sailed. I think that's possible from the text, even though I don't think that's what's going on. I think it's the first. I think that it's just you're guilty of a sin that is limiting you from coming to forgiveness. That says nothing of the fact that maybe 10 years from now, the Holy Spirit might wreck you like he did the Apostle Paul, who from all accounts was blaspheming against who Jesus was and what the Holy Spirit was witnessing to do. But I understand where some of the passages that talk about Esau in Hebrews chapter 12 about not finding occasion to come back to repentance in Hebrews chapter 6 could mean someone um, that becomes so absolutely hardened um, that they are not going to turn. Other theologians try to connect this um, to a sin that leads to death in uh, John's epistles, but I don't see the connection there. And so I like to stay as much just right here in this text as I can. And that's why I would say is just someone is guilty of the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The scripture says that person does not have forgiveness and has a sin hanging over them that needs to be forgiven from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a stark warning. It should perk our ears. It should make us aware. But in simplest terms, I would argue this, that the person who is blaspheming, again, it's a repeated posture and attitude, is the person that is defiantly refusing to accept the truth that the Holy Spirit is witnessing to their hearts. Romans chapter 1 They have suppressed the truth that has been revealed to them, whether in creation or witness to them through the church and believers. And they stand unforgiven, and they stand under the guilt of an eternal sin, having rejected the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus upon the cross. And so my encouragement to you would be the opposite of that. (laughs) My encouragement would be, do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but instead, as 1 John 4 says, and as 1 Corinthians 12 says, from the heart, receive what the Holy Spirit is witnessing to you about in Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord. Confession, I would argue from these passages, is going in the other direction as blasphemy. If blasphemy is rejecting the Holy Spirit as demonic or something else, or rejecting Jesus as something else, then confessing Jesus is receiving him as he truly is and proclaiming with the mouth his excellencies. So anyways, that's our sermon extension. If you want to check out the full sermon, you can get that on fbcbayfield.com. Again, if you have questions or um, different things you would like for us to tackle here on the Portable Pulpit, you can send those to me, and uh, we'll try to serve you guys best we can. Love you. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the Portable Pulpit. If you've been blessed, like it, share it, subscribe to it, and for goodness sake, send us some ideas.